All right, good morning, church. Uh, I want to welcome everyone this morning. Uh, so if you're new with us, my name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zion, and we are so glad that you are joining us this morning, whether it be here or online. We're just happy to have you. Uh, and I also, I, I hope you all had a good uh, Thanksgiving, like a good Thanksgiving holiday. I know we've been discussing conflict, and so I'm hoping if you had families get together that you didn't have to put any of the skills that Jason taught to use or into full practice because you were fighting. Uh, but if you did, I hope you turned to each other in prayer. I hope that you guys gave thanks to God, and I hope you were able to work through it and have a good holiday. So uh, I know my family, we, we all got together, and we're all opinionated, so I understand. They're in the room today, so it's okay. But anyway... All right. Uh, I also wanted to give a quick shout-out. If those of you who didn't go to our... Uh, Thanksgiving service, like Pastor Bang, he just, Steve Bang, he knocked it out of the park, like, he was so funny, like, for real, like, I think I'm funny, but, like, his jokes were just, they were just hitting, like, I, I liked it, it was such a good sermon, uh, and it really made me think about how, even though there's struggles in life, even though there's tough times, that almost all of those can be turned into a blessing, that there is a blessing hidden uh, within those. And he had us yell a lot in a traditional church. So it was really cool. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to him because I, that really helped me jumpstart the week. Like it was a busy, crazy week, and that really helped get me focused. And so, yeah, thanks. All right. I didn't really know how to end that, but that's Okay. All right, so we're going to continue our journey as we explore the next part of our uh, Passport to, to Glacia series. And so if you brought your passports, go ahead and get them out. Uh, there's a lot that I'm covering today. Uh, I told the other service as they were leaving, like, just stick around and we'll just go into the second half uh, during this service. So we'll just do, I'll just take up the whole time uh, on one topic. No, but no, we won't do that. But uh, we do have, it is intense, there's a lot going on today, so feel free to get your passports out. Or if you're following along in your Bibles or on the uh, Zion app or the Bible app, we are going to be in Galatians 3, okay? So the first 14 verses of Galatians 3, that's what we're going to try or attempt uh, to cover today. And I say attempt because, man, there's a lot. Uh, Jennifer said, you know, three or four weeks ago, she's like, you know, whoever teaches on this, like, oh man, they're in for a doozy. And I actually wrote in there like, oh no, it wasn't too bad in my first draft. I was like, this isn't too bad. Uh, and I took that out because it, <laughs> it is a doozy. There is a lot going on. And so, yeah, we're going to jump into it. But anyway, uh, I do think when studying this chapter, it did, it, it's one of those that it started out to, it, on, on the surface level, it does seem very straightforward. It seems like, like to me, I'm like, yeah, the fact that, you know, works doesn't get you to heaven, that it's faith in God, like, that's a fundamental of, like, who I am, like, that's what I was raised, that's, you know, I think that's the one thing Lutherans teach. Like, literally, that's like, you know, it's it's the fundamental part of what we know. And and so when I when I was reading this, like, at first glance, it's like, yeah, like, almost duh. Like, it, you know, I didn't say that about them. I love your book, don't, you know. <laughs> but it, it was one of those things at first glance where it did seem uh, to be easy. But as I explored the text more, it became very clear that Paul is making some major claims that would have been seen as pretty crazy at that time. 
And general, and in general, this can be said about almost anything Paul writes, that almost everything he does is challenging, because he was. He was intelligent. He was uh, well-informed. He, he had all of the background. His knowledge of Scripture was quite advanced, like way more than what I have. Uh, Paul understood, understood Roman law and rhetoric, and so he had his life in, uh, as a Roman, but he also uh, grew up a, as a Jew, and so he knew all the, the Jewish traditions and backgrounds. And so I, I do believe he was the perfect candidate to, uh, for God to use to spread, I don't want to call it a new gospel, but to spread the gospel that opened up beyond just the Jews and opened to the Gentiles, which was basically everybody else. I think he was the perfect candidate to do that. But... That makes his writings kind of hard. It makes them a little, a little trickier. Um, and the way Paul seems to do it is he always has a blunt main point that it's just like, and he does. This one smacks you in the face, I think. Like, he comes out swinging. I don't think he, give, he lets up, and I think he just keeps at it. But then there's always a larger overall point that you then have to try to decipher what is he actually trying to say. And so, if you're reading Paul, so Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, Thessalonians, Philemon, Colossians, Philippians, Timothy, or Titus, don't worry if it's hard. Like, it, it's okay. It's okay if this stuff is if it's difficult. It's okay. Like, I used, like, three or four different translations. I used my Bible. I used two or three commentaries, a book, and I still... Not quite sure. I figured it all out. Like, that's how in-depth, that's how, uh, I'm going to use the word thick, that's how encompassing uh, Paul can be and how his writings can be. And so just know that's okay. Don't be discouraged. And that's one of the benefits of being the church. That's one benefits of being a part of a body is that you can work through this stuff together. You can, you can explore scripture together in a Bible study uh, with your friends, with, you know, come into this sermon all of these things help us understand Scripture better. It helps us understand how to read it and how to put it into practice. And so, yeah, I, I, hope, that, I hope that you don't get discouraged. I hope that the heaviness of Scripture doesn't weigh on you and that there's freedom in it, but sometimes we have to work to get there. And so, yeah. But I'm going to do my best to provide any cultural and historical context. And at the same time, I'm going to try to break down these 14 verses. I'm not going to do every single verse, but I'm going to try to give you a, a thorough understanding of what's being said here. And so as I mentioned, the past couple weeks, we've been walking through conflict. And the story used in Galatians about the conflict between Peter and Paul, I think directly sets up what we're about to talk about in this section. Let me, so let me kind of refresh your memory about what's taking place. So in the second half of the book of Acts, it gives a detailed account of Paul's missionary travels. Basically, after Jesus' death, there was this movement that began in Jerusalem, but quickly expanded beyond Israel. And this movement was also starting to branch beyond uh, the Jews as well. So basically, Paul would travel town to town, region to region, sharing the gospel of Jesus. And Paul would essentially come into a town, would spend time there with followers of that region, and in these areas, uh, churches would be established, or he'd be visiting previously established churches. But either way, he would kind of share the gospel which, with each of them. And, you know, it's hard for us to fathom, like, you know, we had Dean Hess, we had him for 28 years, so, like, he was in one spot, but at this, it was like a couple weeks, a month, whatever it might be, a year, it was, it was a select group, a, a select bit of time, and then he would have to move on, okay? And so he would have to go on and continue his missionary work to other areas, to his next place that God leads him to. 
And so at this point, the number of non-Jewish Christians were starting to outnumber the Jewish followers. And as human nature seems to always indicate, it caused conflict. It caused debate. It caused uh, dissension between, between the groups. And a majority of that conflict was discussed over the last couple weeks. But here's kind of the basis of what's going on. There was a group of Jewish Christians that felt like the non-Jews needed to live life as they did. That Israel needed to be set apart from the world and needed to follow the practices commanded from the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, that they had to do these things. They needed to follow the law. They needed to, to do all these things, okay? And Paul was like, hold your role here. Like, take a step back. That's not, you know, hold on, there's more to it than just that. And so there was a group of Jewish Christians called Judaizers who came to Galatia to cause problems. These people would come in and try to almost alter the gospel message delivered by Paul in order to get these people to look like them. To, and, and, and let's just break it down to being circumcised. That's one of the main debates here is that they wanted them to be circumcised. Okay, So... In the previous chapter, you see how uh, Paul introduces us to this idea of justification. This means that we are made right with God, okay? And we are made righteous. And this chapter seems to be Paul's defense of that position, okay? So he, he has this conflict with Peter. It's kind of one of those things where uh, he sets up the conflict, and then here it kind of feels like he's fleshing it out. Here's his defense to it. Here's his backing, his support of why he believes that, okay? And he does it in a way that is complex. He does it in a way that is, I'll even call it scandalous at times. Like, it is... It is I don't know. We'll just get into it. I don't. I, I built it up enough. Uh, so, but it, it is important, and I want you to, to. I want you to realize the scale. It's not just. This isn't just a, a verse that or a group of verses that he's giving us. There is so much more that he's doing here, and so just prepare your mind for that. But you know, in in first glance, it might look like uh, he held Peter accountable for what he thought was was an area of mistake by Peter, and then it could you could easily interpret this as being. Uh, his, him holding the, the church in Galatia uh, accountable as well. And I think there is an element of that. To discredit that would be, I think, would, would misread Scripture a little bit. But that is not, if you stop there, I think you're missing out on what actually is being said here. So yes, he does want to correct their view and, re, and remind them of what the gospel means and why it's important and why they are direct uh, recipients of that gospel. And so that part is important, but I think he, that's the, that's the blunt, the accountability I think is the blunt part that I was talking earlier, but then he, we have to kind of understand what's next. What is the, what does this mean and what is he trying to do? So in true Paul fashion, he uses different techniques, techniques and writing styles to get his point across. And he uses one of my favorite ways, which is uh, he uses scripture to help support his understanding. So this is so basically what he does is he takes scripture and he uses that to interpret other scripture. It'd be like if I took something from Matthew in order to read Isaiah or vice versa, okay? Very handy, it's very awesome because what it does is it expands the Bible beyond what you can even imagine. It makes this book this big and it turns it into so interconnected and so diverse and so awesome, okay? But the problem is, is that it becomes so easy to manipulate verses into saying what you want it to say. Taking verses that are not connected 
and making it feel like they're connected because that's what the point you're trying to make. That's the danger of it. I don't believe that Paul is doing that here. There are, there are critics of his stance. This is a very controversial section of, of verses. There are critics that think he's doing that. I don't think he is, and I think he provides a very detailed background of why he does what he does and why he sees it that way. And so uh, I love this way of reading Scripture, and I think it's going to be very interesting as we, as we walk through it. So he does have merit. It's not just him throwing something out there. I'm going to say willy-nilly. <laughs> like it's not just uh, off, off the hand. It's something that's, that's true, and he, he, he backs it up. Okay, so before we dive, though, into this section, I'd like to outline the structure of what's happening in this verse. Uh, so I'm just going to set it up for us real quick, uh, and I think it's going to be something that we're going to build on for the coming weeks. This message is going to be, I'm going to set the foundation, the meat of what we're going to talk about, and then hopefully uh, Megan next week is going to give you the, the hope in the fun part. So if this one, you're going to like hers probably way more than you're going to like this one. But uh, So this is going to establish the groundwork, but basically there's a three-part structure to this, and each part builds off of the previous section, and it begins with the covenant that God makes with Abraham, then it moves on to the covenant made uh, to Moses in regards to the law. And then it concludes with the, the promise that is found in Christ. Okay, so that's kind of the structure that is used here. And just so you are understanding, a lot of the Jews at this time would have viewed things through what I call a Moses lens. Okay, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example of that. I'm going to take my 2005 glasses off. I'm hard on contacts, apparently. So, and then I stepped on them right before. So they're like barely holding together. Okay, that's not in the sermon. Okay, so view these as, as my Moses sunglasses. These are the, this is everything Moses taught us. This is everything that we learned about, about Moses. And I put them on, okay? They look real cool doing it, yeah. But I put these glasses on. Can I still read scripture? Absolutely. But if I read everything through the lens of Moses, it might affect the way that I should be reading Abraham. It might affect the way that I should be reading Jesus. It might affect the way that I read any of the other verses. And it's not just with, it's not just with reading scripture. You know, we probably have a Lutheran lens that we, we view things through. Or maybe it's a, a Clear Lake lens. We all have these things that kind of... Uh, Bl not blind us, because we can still read it, but affect the way in which we read Scripture. And I believe that's kind of what's happening here. I, I believe that the Jews at this time definitely had a Moses lens, because up till Jesus, that Moses was the guy. He was what a lot of everything was built upon, okay? And so what Paul's doing here is he's asking them to take off their Moses glasses and view things through Abraham, okay? Does that make sense? You don't have to answer. That'd be weird if I ask you guys to answer. But I'm hoping that makes sense to you guys because it is important to, to, to truly understand what, what he's going to be getting at. Okay, so basically what he's doing now is the promises that, the promises that are made to, to Abraham, he thinks that the, the, the people of, of today, that they were reading it through the lens of Moses, which basically he thought was kind of making the, the ones of Abraham, I won't say obsolete, but less important in that they were focusing on uh, Moses instead. And then he's going to even bring in a third lens and have to see how Christ now 
influences both. Okay? All right. All of that, and now we're going to get to our text today. <laughs> I know, that might seem like uh, a crazy amount of buildup, but uh, I do think it's important to understand, to get our mindset in the, in the right direction before we, we dive into it. Okay, so here's Galatians 3, 1 through 5, okay? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, having started with the Spirit and now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and the work of miracles among you by doing works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now, at first glance, uh, this reads as though, like I said earlier, that he's, he's just trying to hold everyone accountable, but, as he did with Peter. But what this is actually doing is he's, he is turning the attention to the Galatians, but there's something more to it. There's something that, uh, that's going to pop as we get through this. So, like I said, he's making his defense. He's starting to establish his viewpoint. So when he says, you foolish Galatians, he's meaning... You know better. I mean, you can hear it in his voice as if he's saying it to you. You foolish Galatians. Now, this is a way to start a book, uh, a letter to the people when your audience is the one you're insulting on the very first line, okay, of this chapter. He's literally writing it to the Galatians, and he calls them fools. That's the way to start a book. I just love that. I think that's, that's the best way that you, can, that you can start something like that. But you can hear it in his voice. You can hear his exasperation uh, like, oh my gosh, like, you know better. You know better than this. And what I love about, what I love about this is it kind of, there's a similar situation in word choice that happens after the death and resurrection. Basically, Jesus is walking with two men, and they were walking away from Jerusalem. All the stuff had just happened, and, they, and basically Jesus asked, what are you guys talking about? And they respond with basically telling him what happened with Jesus' death and the crucifixion. And then they talk about how they have basically lost their hope. They express their lack of hope after Jesus died. Even though they knew everything that they knew, they still were feeling hopeless after Jesus' death. And so here's how Jesus responds. In Luke 24, 25 through 27, Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into the glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all of Scripture. Jesus had been warning his disciples and had been teaching and preparing them for his death, telling them that he is the Messiah, that this is a part of Scripture, that this is, this is necessary, and yet they had already lost their hope. How foolish of them! And now, Jesus then begins to teach them, and, and I, love, I love that verse. He starts to teach them how the prophets and how, he li- how Jesus is a part of Scripture, even in the Old Testament. I, I love that verse. But how foolish of them. And if I were to put myself into this story of the two men gossiping, would I have done any better? Would I not have been right along with them? Would I not, my hope, would it have been lost as well? Or if we move to the back to the story of, of, from Galatians, have I not been led astray? How foolish are you, Derek? 
How foolish. Now, I say this because I took this as a personal wake-up call. No, the, the scripture doesn't read, how foolish, Derek. No, it doesn't say that. But I did take it as that. Because I am, I am a person who is very quick to dismiss you know, the spiritual things of this world. I'm very quick to, uh, I don't know, it's, sometimes it's just easier. It's easier to just dismiss some of the uh, spiritual warfare, the, the evils of this world. It's easier to just dismiss them. Actually, no, I jumped ahead. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, let me backtrack. I, I, I want to get this right. Okay. Sorry, I gave it all in the first, the first message. I'm wore out today. Okay, so I talk about how complicated this is. I talk about how, how even though over the last three, three months, right, I've been, I even introduced the idea of this idea that Jesus plus nothing, that how simple Scripture can be, how easy it is to, to read Scripture, Yet it took us three months to explain it. It took us three months to, 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 to pour it into you guys. That's not simple. That's hard. These verses are hard. This stuff that we're talking about is difficult. And so it's okay. But anyway, Paul just doesn't just stop with name-calling, okay? He then makes a switch, and he talks about how they, it's almost as if they were bewitched. Okay, Paul is astonished that they have been led astray by Judaizers. He finds it crazy that he attributes it metaphorically to witchcraft, basically saying they would have had to be bewitched to have fallen into this trap. And by taking this stance, by taking this route, Paul is comparing these Judaizers basically to evil sorcerers. And to us, that might sound pretty strange. Like, in our context, that might sound pretty strange. But to them in this time, in this place, that would have, been, that would have, that would have had an impact. They don't have the same level of hesitance to spiritual warfare as we might experience today. And I'm here to tell you right now that evil, darkness, sin, the devil, that's all real. And this is not just a story, this is not just a fable, but it's very real and it has an, a practical impact on us today. So when he calls them foolish Galatians, he's trying to get them to wake up from that spell. Reminding them of the true gospel. And like I was trying, this is where I jumped ahead. What I was trying to say before is that this section really spoke to me because I'm one of those who does. I'm very quick to dismiss the spiritual. I am, and I, I don't want to say that because I, I don't know if it's just how I grew up, but I'm very quick to do that. And man, isn't that exactly what the devil would want? Us to dismiss the fact that he's real? But sometimes it's just easier to dismiss it, whether we intend to or not. And so he, even if this verse wasn't written to me specifically, even if it doesn't say, you foolish Derek... I took it as a personal wake-up call. He was trying to wake up the Galatians, and I feel like it, it woke me up as well. Then Paul continues, and he adds in another odd phrase. And this one he says and that Jesus was crucified before their very eyes. Now, the church of, of Galatia would not have likely been there to present at the time of Jesus' death. It would not, it's not like they would have actually experienced it or seen it firsthand. 
So that's a bit confusing. That's a, that's a section of, of text that is a little hard to understand. It's a little, it's a little complicated. There's a couple of, of things that it could mean. Like one, it could just mean that, that they taught the, that Paul taught the gospel. He taught it in a way that they should know it. It's something that they should understand. It's something that they should easily recognize. It's something that they shouldn't forget. Another method would be that often Paul liked to utilize, uh, put himself in the message. Basically, look at the scars on my body. Look at the, the life I live, that that is him living out the gospel. So, like, you've seen it. You've seen me. You've seen the gospel. And then there's a third one. What it would be like, Scripture predicted this. Scripture shows that this was what's going to happen. You know all of this. And so whether, which it doesn't matter which of the, which of the three is meant, the idea is that they should have known better. That they should not have been so quickly to forget. And so Paul writes these first five verses utilizing a series of rapid-fire questioning. And it's meant to be off-putting. And it is. Like I said, it's supposed to be that wake-up call. He hammers them with questions. But really, all of these verses can, can kind of be summarized with the rhetorical question he asks in verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? This is where Paul directly confronts the issue. And if the, Galatia, <clears throat> and if the Galatians answer the question truthfully, then the debate is over. Paul wanted them to come to the conclusion on their own that they've already received the Holy Spirit of God entirely apart from circumcision, apart from any observance of Jewish law. This is also Paul's first mention of the Holy Spirit in this book, which becomes a major theme and element as this letter progresses. But Paul's argument is that the Spirit is the single sufficient sign that the Galatians are already adopted into Christ's family. He's not trying to argue whether or not they've received the Spirit. He just makes it as a, as a, as a, it's already decided. It is. You've received the Spirit. And if that's the case, and you have the Holy Spirit, then circumcision is unnecessary. So they have the Spirit. But what does the second part mean where it says to believe what you've heard? Because I believe there needs to be a, a distinction here that it is not just hearing merely a human response, like to hearing the word spoken, but instead that God offers a message that elicits faith. Or another common phrase is uh, the Holy Spirit sparks faith in us. It ignites us. It lights us. Paul is using these verses to call the Galatians to reflect back on their own initial experience of coming to faith. Many of you probably remember yours. Even if you've grown up in the church like I have, there's still been times where you've, like, you've experienced the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is trying to get them to reflect upon. This is what he's trying to get them to, to think about. You've experienced the Holy Spirit. Now here's how to continue living in the power of the Spirit. So these personal reflections should prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that no human sign is then necessary. And so Paul continues, but this time he pulls from Scripture and discusses the promises made to Abraham. So here's a real quick recap of Abraham. After humanity was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, we took a massive free fall where we just fell deeper and deeper into our sinful ways. And 
God decides to correct this issue, and he, he selected a man named Abram at the time, who eventually becomes Abraham, and he instructed Abraham to leave his home and offered him a truly amazing promise. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. This would have been absolutely crazy. One, that's some pretty awesome, some pretty awesome promises and blessings that God is offering here. But just think about it. God asked you to just pick up and move to a new place. You might have had it pretty nice there, but God says to go. Not only that, Abraham and his wife were old at the time, and yet God promises them something big. He says they'll give them an heir, and not just that, that he promises to make the family into a great nation. These are some radical promises, and Abraham has to be willing to respond especially when God asked him to get circumcised. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty big deal for God to be like, oh yeah, here's also what I need from you. And so that's kind of the background of, of Abraham. So I think we're ready now where we can dive into this next section, okay? So we're going to now be in Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you see, those who believe are descendants of Abraham. Now I want to pause here for a second, and I want to, this is where I like to use Bible translations, okay? Uh, and that's why I use them on my phone, but sometimes when you read a certain bit of scripture, it can be hard to understand. I believe this is one of those where when you just read it, it's, it's hard to understand. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. I'm from Missouri, I use the word reckon. But I don't know what reckon to righteousness means, reckon to him as righteousness. Like, that's confusing. And so I like to turn to another Bible translation. Translations are not evil. They're not necessarily bad. All of them have both good things and bad things about them. They all have strengths and weaknesses. But I like to turn to another one when I don't understand Scripture. I like to see <clears throat> what, another, what another translation says. And I had a professor tell me one time, like, and before you go and judge a translation and you think you can translate it better, just know you probably can't. Like You, you don't have the, the, the Greek, you don't have the Hebrew, you don't have the true understanding of it. Like there was a, a group, a, a council put these together. Like don't just assume they're wrong, that there's benefit to each of them. And so uh, here I'm going to use the NLT and I'm going to reread that. In the same way, Abraham believed God and God counting, counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. Abraham was made justified, which was made right with God, and it had nothing to do with his works. It was because he believed, and the same thing can be said about his, the potential for his descendants, and this becomes another complex layer of this section. Who can be counted as children of Abraham? And so Paul is going to be making an important claim here that it's that expands it beyond just a, uh, a birthright or a lineage or beyond just being direct descendants of Abraham. And it made me think of uh, Luke 3, 8. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children 
to Abraham. It's not about relying on your bloodline, that there's more to it than that. It's through faith. And so why is Paul telling us the story of Abraham? I think is an extremely helpful question. The main reason would be that he's wanting us, he's wanting to use scripture to back up what he was saying earlier about Gentile Christians not needing to be circumcised in order to be held to the Jewish standard. He knows the law. He understands the importance of the commandments. He understands the importance of all this and about being held to the Jewish standard. Like he understands it. It's not like he doesn't know about it. It's not like he's, he's ignoring it. But instead, he's, he's trying to get them to not use that, that lens of Moses again and wants them to look at it through the, the eyes of, of Abraham. He's trying to change the perspective a little bit. And in the verses we just read, God made Abraham righteous, and there was nothing that he had to do to earn it. And Paul knew that the, the, the missionaries, that they would use Genesis 17, in which Abraham receives and obeys God's command to be circumcised, he knew that they would use it against him. He knew, he knew that God commanded Abraham to be circumcised. But why it's important is because to Paul, it showed that Abraham was made righteous before he was asked to be circumcised. That it had nothing to do with being circumcised, that he was already righteous and that he he became circumcised out of obedience. That that came from it. Abraham was already made righteous, and God's promise holds with or without that sign of circumcision. So by zooming in on Genesis 15, 6, Paul was saying, no, the story of Abraham was not fundamentally about circumcision or obeying the law, but instead it was about trusting in God's promise. And so, obviously, uh, Paul then pushes his claim even more in verses 8 and 9. And the scripture, this is in Galatians 8 and 9, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. What Paul is doing here is a little controversial and where opponents probably pushed back on him. He is expanding the promise made to Abraham to all Gentiles. The blessings of Abraham is ultimately intended for the whole world, not just for the Jews. And Abraham's true children are those who identify in trusting God's promise. And he's making that the, the inference that this is, is what scripture meant the whole time. Is that it was foreshadowing future events. And now, Paul has his reasons for, for believing this to be true, and it's not, it's not, like I said, it's not something he just throws around. However, I caution all of you to be careful to read texts like this. Because I believe, that, I believe that, that Paul has the knowledge to do it, and he also had uh, inspiration from the Holy Spirit to do it. But be careful if you just take a, a, a part of Scripture and say, man, I'm going to read this thing from Genesis, and I'm going to apply it to myself and all of humanity forever. Be careful. <laughs> Make sure that, that you know what you're talking about. Because it, it, it's very... Uh, you can accidentally manipulate text to fit your needs. Okay, so now this brings us to our, our final section. So this is Galatians 10 through 14. For, for all who rely on the works of the law under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the one who is righteous will live by faith, but the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. So let the controversy continue. Paul is just full of uh, drama all over the place today. This is another one of those very controversial sections. People, people view it uh, differently. And it would take all kinds of Bible studies to probably truly unpack it to the level that we probably should. But in general, Paul is making an extremely outlandish claim that those who find their identity in the law, in the Ten Commandments, in, the, in that, are cursed. And he's not saying the law is bad or that you can't live according to it, but he's saying that, that anyone who finds their true identity in it, that's, that they are cursed from it. And he's saying that Israel's history shows that they were not able to live out the law. And here's how the New Interpreter's, New Interpreter's Bible's commentary describes this section. If you affiliate yourself with those who place their hope in obeying the law, i.e. the missionaries, the Judaizers, you are joining the losing team. Not because obedience is theoretically impossible, but because Israel historically has failed and has in fact incurred the judgment in which Deuteronomy solemnly warns. That is, Israel was sent away into exile, and despite the return from exile, has never recovered the blessing promised in Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. And I want to be clear here that I don't think Paul is trying to say get rid of the law. It is not him condemning the Jews. He is warning against those who find their identity in the law. But the simple takeaway is that the law is not enough, meaning there must be another way. And Paul uses the following verse as kind of a key to his understanding of Scripture. In Habakkuk 2.4, look at the proud. The spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. The righteous live by their faith. This feels like the verse that unlocks Paul's view of God's world, of God's word. It has a strong presence in this book and in Romans, and, it, and it, his interpretation, it seems, to be the foundation for many of his other writings. And so finally, we're going to move to the last section. I invite the band to, to make their way up here as we close with verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is where the lens changes one more time. This is where Paul is not asking us to read through the lens of Abraham or through Moses, but instead to see it through Christ. That the promise offered through Christ fulfills the promise both of, those, of both of those men. That Jesus takes on the curse. That he sets us free from its grip on us. That all Gentiles are included, all Gentiles who believe are included in this promise. And it is done through faith. And I understand. I understand that this topic is a little heavy today. And I get that it's, it's a hard one to follow. That there's a lot of things that, that Paul takes and he takes it to a level that is very confusing and it's very hard to understand. But despite the challenging nature of this text, I hope that you understand that it is still something that you can put into practice. And I know that uh, you should come back next week because I know that is going to be the heart of Megan's message. But here's the big idea. All believers in Christ have been invited into God's family. 
With that comes some radical promises by God, which then should lead us to some radical obedience. And I love that Paul used Abraham in this text because Abraham was offered some amazing promises by God that he would have a child at the age that he was, that he would have a nation that would come from his family, and then all of the blessings. However, these radical promises led to some radical obedience. God's promise to Abraham was given by grace, and Abraham had to trust in that promise through faith. And it is that faith that leads to his radical obedience. And so this is my desire for each and every one of you here today. I want you to live your faith out. Walk every day putting your trust in the power of Jesus. When you put your complete trust in God, you will, be, you will do things that will seem absolutely crazy to the world. When you hear the phrase being on fire for God, being on fire for the Lord, that's what I want for each and every one of you. This is not a message that says that we can just sit in our seats and do nothing. This is a message that shows us that we have to be radically transformed by God and that we have to be in radical obedience to him, not for salvation's sake, but because we believe God. We believe in his promises. We believe in everything that he offers. And then through that, through that, it transforms our hearts. It transforms who we are. And we act then out of obedience to him. I don't care if you're living it out at home, work, school, when you go out to eat, in your relationships. I want you to represent Jesus to the world. That radical obedience that I'm talking about, it needs to stand in stark contrast to the world around you. That is the goal and the job of each and every one of us as followers of Christ, that we are to live that out. So please do not fall into the same trap that the Galatians fell into. Let this be a transforming thing. I'm going to even say it. I want you this to be a wake-up call for us, church. I want this to be something that radically changes who we are. I'm not going to call you fools like Paul did, but I want you to wake up. I want you to understand that this is what we're here for. This is the fire we should be on. Like This should, this should transform who we are and how we behave, how we treat other, how we are in relationship with other, how we deal with conflict with one another. That's what this is all about. Do not be bewitched. Do not let your gospel be warped by anyone. Live it out. Let your sign to the world be the way in which you live out your faith. Let them know that God is everything that you do. And so I'm going to end uh, with a quote from David Platt. A majority of the staff, we went to a conference a couple weeks ago, and he was one of the speakers. And he said this, We often don't live radical lives because we don't have faith. People who are saved by grace alone through faith alone don't sit back and indulge in sin and the ways of this world just like everyone else. Why? Because they believe God. They're not only saved by grace through faith, but they also live by grace through faith. And they risk everything because they know that God is good, that he is sufficient, and that he satisfies Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for this message. Uh, Lord, I know it was, it was hard to deliver. Lord, I know I was all over the place. But Lord, I hope that this message has an impact on the people. 
that they hear your heart in this, that they understand that faith in you is so much more than just believing your name, that it's living it out. And so, Lord, we lift everything up to you today. Lord, thank you for the, the holiday weekend we had. And Lord, just thank you for all the blessings that you deliver. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and it's in the powerful name of Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.